Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. One of the yogis today was saying that at times it feels like doing this practice seems like going into a closet and just turning our back on the world. There's so much out there to be experienced, all the joys and the sorrows and things to be involved in. It can seem insular and kind of selfish, especially to people who don't understand what's going on here, as well as you being here yourself and wondering what's going on. (coughs) So tonight I wanted to talk a little bit about how practice, how we can relate practice to living our lives skillfully in the world, the outside world. There's so few people who share this perspective, this Dharma perspective of life, and it can be disheartening when we go back and just see how clearly that's the case. So there might be a tendency to just want to turn our backs on all of that ignorance and greed and fear and aggression and just be around like-minded people. It certainly helps to be around like-minded people to keep the reminders going but we don't live in an island. We live on a planet in which all things are interconnected. And so, I don't think it's so useful to think of practice as being fragmented from involvement in the world. The Buddhist path might seem passive, just sitting around meditating, watching your breath, letting experience come and go. Actually, in the meditation, there's an active element as well as letting the experience just be received. There's an active investigation as to what's going on. So it's not just sitting back, as you've probably seen. It takes some effort to take a careful look. But besides just the meditation practice, this whole unfolding, these teachings concern themselves very much with living in the world. Jack talked about the Eightfold Path the first night. And one area of that Eightfold Path, three of the eight links in this development have to do with living in the world. Conduct, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And the guideline for those as was mentioned, is not causing suffering through our actions or speech or livelihood. But the Buddha realized that we're not just living in caves and let's see how quickly we can escape. Besides the Eightfold Path, another central theme in the teachings is that of compassion. The Buddha was called the All-Compassionate One. And it was actually out of his compassion 
for the suffering that he saw around, that he was motivated to share his understanding, his awakening. Compassion is one of the divine abodes that as practice becomes strong, as concentration is developed, can be experienced as a a direct result of this practice. Divine abodes of loving-kindness and equanimity and joy in the joy of others and this quality of compassion, feeling the suffering for others and feeling that sense of connection Really, compassion is the natural expression of the mind that is open to more sensitivity and more care. When we couple these two aspects, right action and compassion, it can be taken one step further than not creating suffering through our actions, but having an active attitude of relieving the suffering around us. And that's the expression of what's called the Mahayana teachings. Seeing the suffering and seeing that that suffering, you're involved in that suffering as well. And there is a a spontaneous impulse to relieve that suffering. Because the more suffering in the world there is, the more it affects all of us. So in that sense, we're not just practicing for ourselves as we sit here, there's a kind of responsibility that comes with this practice. Practicing for everyone. So we can further purify ourselves and be that much more able to express truth, honesty, compassion, kindness. As we're sitting here in the meditation, we're cultivating compassion. It starts with ourselves. And I talked a bit about it a number of nights ago. That attitude towards the body that hurts or the mind that wanders. When we see the hindrances and the suffering that we experience, the first impulse is to react with fear. And when we react that way, we're just cultivating either more self-pity or judgment for what we see. And that gets things very tight and confusing. It doesn't allow for clear seeing. But as we look more and more, we're starting to be able to see those same hindrances and suffering with a bit less fear, some fearlessness, some love and some acceptance And when that's possible, that pity turns to compassion. Because there's not that contraction around what we're seeing and we're able to open up to it. Feel it and yet not be shaken by it. Experiencing pain with an open heart. That's what the cultivation of compassion is. And as we can do that with ourselves, we start to be able to do that with others. Seeing their suffering, seeing their pain, again with an open heart, without fear, without blame, 
but just seeing the pain for what it is. So that's a good direction to work towards, having compassion and forgiveness and understanding not only for ourselves, but for others' unskillful actions. And there's an awful lot of unskillful actions that we encounter out there. Even among people who are involved in Dharma practice, there's Vipassana vendettas with somebody who's been sincerely just looking at their breath and doing the practice. It's that much more of a challenge to be around people who don't have a clue of what it's like to to be present, non-judging, and caught in anger and greed. This having compassion and forgiveness for those unskillful actions that we, we see in others, it doesn't mean being weak, being a wimp, and just letting other people walk all over you because you are understanding. It's okay. They're just caught in their trip and they can go ahead and, and beat me or rob me or rip me off. Sometimes being firm is the most compassionate thing we can do. Just like when you are around a child and a child wants to cross the street and isn't looking, you firmly bring the child back and say, no, you don't do that. Well, we're all big children inside. Sometimes it takes a firm, compassionate response with some strength behind it. Taking a stand is very much a part of living the Dharma because it means getting in touch with what we believe to be true in our hearts. And it takes, just as it does on the cushion, it takes a sincerity and a courage to be with what your real experience is. Sometimes people associate strength and taking a firm stand with aggression because it's, it's true that the forces of aggression are very strong And there's a lot of negativity that can come out in that strong statement. And so, in an effort to be spiritual, sometimes people get caught in thinking that the way to do it is to be more soft and open-hearted. And that's what's emphasized. And so you might be confusing being vocal with disharmony. A number of years ago, I had this pointed out by a friend who said, it seems that your idea of harmony is not making waves. And although that wasn't what my idea was in my head, that was what my response was in my gut. You know, Just don't make waves. Let everything be, be smiling and, and happy. That's harmony. It's not harmony. Harmony means the whole show the joys and the sorrows. And the fact is, we're always making waves. There's no way you can get around it. Even when you're trying to be very inconspicuous, you ever go into 
are in a room when somebody walks in and they're very, very shy and they want to hide in the corner because they don't want other people to see. Everybody's eyes turn towards them. You can just feel their vibes. I once heard one teacher say, timidity is just another ego trip. And it's true. That's the stance that you have. Oh, I'm someone who is quiet and shy. There's no way you get around affecting others that are with you, that are around you. We're all interrelated, and there's rippling effects that come from our energy. So not to confuse being out there and saying what you believe with aggression. In fact, power is not good or bad. It's just power. And some of the people who have developed their spiritual growth to a tremendous degree are the ones that embody that kind of power, that kind of power that can make things happen just by how in touch they are with their hearts. I was wondering what talk to give today, and then I just took a look in the mirror, and I saw the shirt that I had picked up and put on, and I said, well, seems like a good topic for a talk. I'm just thinking of Gandhi, the power that he had, just this little man in a loincloth, didn't look particularly strong, would probably lose an arm wrestle with most people, and yet he had such tremendous power. Or other people, like the Buddha or Jesus, who are just so aligned with the truth that their words are coming from a place that can penetrate right into other people's hearts. So purity of mind is one way to cultivate an effective an effective way of being in the world that can actually create change. And what we do here is cultivate a purity of mind. The practice of mindfulness is a purification. Just in a very um, tangible way, the way the practice works, you cannot have a moment of mindfulness with an unskillful moment of anger or fear or sadness or aggression. They might go very quickly one after another, but in the moment that you're mindful, you're not lost in that, that state of unbalance and grasping and condemning. And so little by little, as we're cultivating mindfulness, we're cultivating a purifying force in our mind. This path is sometimes called the path of purification. And so, in a very direct way, we're cultivating the ability to be more effective in the world because we're more aligned with the truth and not caught in that grasping or condemning. What about the practical application of, of all of this when we leave here? Typically, when we see people lost in unskillful actions, we react with hatred and blame them 
for being evil. The practice starts to dissolve that tendency to point at the blame in others, to point at the the thing, the concept that we have of who we are, of who they are, or who we are. But rather, it comes down to the process level. And instead of seeing that person as evil, it becomes more apparent that it's the ignorance that's the real villain. Just not seeing clearly. And as you see your own mind so easily caught in ignorance and fear and judgment, you see how easy it is for other people to be, especially people who have no practice looking at their minds. And so it's not creating more separation through seeing that unskillfulness, but seeing that it's really the mind that we all share that sometimes gets lost and sometimes doesn't. It's a beautiful poem that I want to read to you that expresses this wholeness and the the predicament of the beauty and the sorrow at the same time. This is by that Vietnamese meditation master, Thich Nhat Hanh, who I mentioned before. It's called, Please Call Me By My True Names. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow, because even today I still arrive. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with wings still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm, the rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the twelve-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo, with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills all four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names, so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open 
the door of compassion. Having that perspective of non-separation, that it is just life, from that stance, it might be possible to see that if ignorance is the real villain, once ignorance is cut through, there's the potential in all of us to understand. That might be really difficult to to take in. We were talking today at lunch uh, about something on this topic, and Jack had mentioned that in the cosmology of the teachings, that in the hell realms where people are condemned, or beings are condemned for eons and eons to be suffering terrible circumstances because of the fruits of their actions, that even in the hell realms, it's possible to move up and see clearly and become enlightened. It helps me very much to relate to the possibility that in each one of us is just the seed of understanding if we can find it, if we can just find a way to open that door. I used to teach kids in uh, public school. And it was a real challenge, especially when you have 30 of them in a, in a class and you're trying to feed them information and keep them in their seats. A real challenge to relate to each one as some unique being who, even in the midst of their anger and fear and the circumstances that they might have been brought up in has that potential to open up that's just crying out for love and approval and connection. And when I was able to do that and when I'm able to do that in the world, it's really a tremendous inspiration. It's not so easy to remember all the time but it's a much more useful stance than thinking that person just has no hope. Because as soon as you do that, there's the separation, and you've given up trying, and there's just more barriers put in the way. With that possibility in mind, the choice is, instead of reacting out of our own anger and fear and delusion, to respond appropriately to the situation at hand. And that takes a balanced, centered space. It takes us not getting caught in our own projections and seeing what is underlying this person's confusion, ignorance. What is the best way that there can be some kind of communication and understanding the Buddha had a very simple and effective guideline for communication. He said, say what's truthful and what's useful. 
It's not that you need to be brutally honest and beat someone up with your, your opinions, but rather to say what's truthful in a way that people can understand. And that takes some sensitivity, which is another thing that we're cultivating here, as you probably have a good sense of, over the days of, of the retreat, how much more open we are how much more aware we are of others' energies, of the moods. Hearing a sound and all of a sudden it can shoot through the body. We're cultivating that sensitivity. And if we can carry that over to the rest of our lives, where we can feel other people's energy and get an idea of what they're willing to hear and open up to, and somehow put it in a way that they can receive it, then there's the possibility of real communication. On a bigger level, when there's strong forces of government or other organizations that are just riddled with ignorance, It can seem like a very overwhelming struggle. And it's easy to get into a defeatist attitude. The ignorance is just too immense to begin to begin to to deal with skillfully. And I've had many moments where I've gotten into that that despair. By the way, there's a beautiful book on working with despair that's written by someone who's very much committed to practice as it just comes to my mind, called Despair and Personal Power in the Nuclear Age. Her name is Joanna Macy. It's wonderful for different exercises in empowering ourselves instead of giving into that despair. But how to deal with it when it's so immense and not just give up hope? It takes a certain kind of conviction willingness to act on your belief in the face of tremendous opposition. I was speaking with a man from Sri Lanka, who actually I'll mention a bit later on. His name is uh, A.T. Aryaratna, who is very wise and has had a tremendous effect on bringing Buddhist ideas and and Gandhian principles into the, uh, uh, the country of Sri Lanka. He was talking about some things that Gandhi had to say about dealing skillfully with such overwhelming negativity, negative forces. He said, Gandhi had said, if you believe strongly in, idea, in an idea, there's a certain evolution of bringing that idea to fruition. He said, at first, if you put out your minority opinion, there's indifference, because you're just a drop in the ocean. But if you really have power behind the idea, real conviction, then other people start to catch that that power and that truth. And as you start to have a little bit more collective energy, 
The next phase is one of ridicule. The people in the majority just kind of putting it down, poo-pooing it. And if there's more momentum gained, then the next step is abuse. Because then you start to become a little bit of a threat. And as the process keeps on developing and there's more of a a coalescing of this kind of opposition, this kind of opposition that comes from belief in, in the truth, after abuse comes oppression, because then the threat is that much larger. And if you can stay with it in the face of all odds, by the courage of your conviction, other people joining your stand your perspective, then might come the most dangerous and last phase, which is recognition, where you're recognized as having been right all along. And then there's the problem of ego and attachment and getting caught up in the very power that, you're, that you've been trying to work skillfully against or with. Then might come the most dangerous and last phase, which is recognition, where you're recognized as having been right all along. And then there's the problem of ego and attachment and getting caught up in the very power that, you're, that you've been trying to work skillfully against or with. And seeing that kind of process happened just in our own country over the last couple of decades in Vietnam when in the early 60s it was such an unpopular stand to be against the war and now it's pretty much seen that the war was an awful waste and cause of grief and suffering for so many it's not a particularly popular war in our history books or people like Richard Nixon, who seem to have so much power and winning landslide elections, the pendulum swings. And now there's disgrace. Now there's jokes. And so, just like when you're sitting on the cushion and you're in the middle of despair, or you're feeling that this resistance is going to be here forever, if you remember, this also passes. It's having that same perspective out in the world, right in the middle of all the ignorance and unskillfulness, the pendulum swings. It's also to remember that if it does swing in the opposite direction, it's going to come back too. So it's not like it's going to stay at any one point. But the challenge is, how can I most effectively live in the conditions that are happening now so that I can cultivate more of that non-greed and non-hatred and non-delusion. <clears throat> so it starts with ourselves 
getting in touch with our own belief. And if we have enough personal power, it starts to get catchy. And there's a collective power that can be cultivated that can create a shift in consciousness. Just read a short passage from this book, The Hundredth Monkey, that probably a number of people know, but there are probably a number of others who don't. Just to illustrate this concept of collective consciousness having power to change. Here's the story of the hundredth monkey. The Japanese monkey, Makaka Fuscata, has been observed in the wild for a period of over 30 years. In 1952, on the island of Koshima, scientists were providing monkeys with sweet potatoes dropped in the sand. The monkeys liked the taste of the raw sweet potatoes, but they found the dirt unpleasant. An 18-month-old female named Imo found she could solve the problems by washing the potatoes in a nearby stream. She taught this trick to her mother. Her playmates also learned this new way, and they taught their mothers too. This cultural innovation was gradually picked up by various monkeys before the eyes of the scientists. Between 1952 and 58, all the young monkeys learned to wash the sandy sweet potatoes to make them more palatable. Only the adults who imitated their children learned this social improvement. Other adults kept eating the dirty sweet potatoes. Then something startling took place. In the autumn of 1958, a certain number of Koshima monkeys were washing sweet potatoes. The exact number is not known. Let us suppose that when the sun rose one morning, there were 99 monkeys on Koshima Island who had learned to wash their sweet potatoes. Let's further suppose that later that morning, the hundredth monkey learned to wash potatoes. Then it happened. By that evening, almost everyone in the tribe was washing sweet potatoes before eating them. The added energy of this hundredth monkey somehow created an ideological breakthrough. But notice, the most surprising thing observed by these scientists was that the habit of washing sweet potatoes then spontaneously jumped over the sea. Colonies of monkeys on other islands and the mainland troop of monkeys on Takasakiyama began washing their sweet potatoes too. Thus, when a certain critical number achieves an awareness, this new awareness may be communicated from mind to mind. Although the exact number may vary, the hundredth monkey phenomenon means that when only a limited number of people know of a new way, it may remain the conscious property of just these people. But there is a point at which if only one more person tunes into a new awareness, a field is strengthened so that this awareness reaches almost everyone. came across a research study by Stanford University, I think it was, that said for the population at large to shift their opinions on something, it seems that 7% is the critical number where if that portion of the population changes, the other 93 
most of whom were riding the fence, seem to come along too. So it's not like you have to change everyone's mind. It's just developing that critical mass. And what we're doing here is somehow creating that critical mass or contributing to it. You can feel the power that comes from all of us sitting together. More direct application or example of application of dharma and consciousness in skillful action is in that Sarvodhya movement that that man Aryaratna started in Sri Lanka about 27 years ago, 1958, I think it was, in which he used Gandhian principles and Buddhist philosophy, Sri Lanka is a Buddhist country, to get into a networking of people helping each other and empowering themselves. And it's a very powerful movement in the country now, where well over 7,000 villages are involved in this self-help. It's about 15% of the population is some way directly or indirectly connected with Sarvodhya activities. Sarvodhya is a word that Gandhi used, which has come to mean the awakening of all. There's a beautiful book also by Joanna Macy called Dharma and Development about the Sarvodhya movement, if you're, you're interested at some point to, to look into it. But what they found was that when people are given the opportunity to give dana, to give energy, to share their energy, and to create something together, to have that sense of community, there's something very precious that gets touched in in people that's much more powerful than how much they can keep for themselves take away from the other person. <clears throat> and it has had a tremendous effect on the country. In our present situation here, in our country and in the world, it's a bit more complex than rural, rural villages in Sri Lanka. And there's a tremendous challenge because the stakes are so high. It demands our commitment to purifying ourselves, to purifying our minds and understanding them more clearly. Not just a good idea, it demands it. Because how else can there be any hope? There's a wonderful book that has come out in the last year that was written by... a meditator, actually a yogi who's sitting on on this retreat, called Staying Alive. And he wrote the book, I think, out of the concern and sensitivity in part that was developed by the practice. And it's a book on the psychology of human survival, talking about the predicament that we're in and possible ways that we can work skillfully with that predicament. He says in the introduction, For the first time in millions of years of evolution, all the major threats to our survival are human-caused. Problems such as nuclear weapons, pollution, 
and ecological imbalance stem directly from our own behavior and therefore can be traced to psychological origins. This means that the current threats to human survival and well-being are actually symptoms, symptoms of our individual and shared mindset. The state of the world is therefore a creation and expression of our own minds, and it is to our minds that we must look for solutions. So when the, the question comes, how is all of this relevant to living our lives in the world? It starts to become more obvious when we see that the problems in the world are caused by this mind. And as we can understand it better and relate to it with compassion and purify those unskillful tendencies of the mind, we're adding a tremendous contribution to relieving that suffering that's around us. One of the most skillful acts we can give is just what we're doing here. Because this is one direct way of overcoming ignorance. And it's of tremendous importance in developing those qualities that affect not only ourselves, but others. And so, it's not just a matter of getting the ideas and understanding and talking about them to other people, but it's living the Dharma. And in living the Dharma, that's the real inspiration. What I'd like to do, instead of taking questions, is just go through a little loving-kindness meditation. And we can end the the evening that way. Just taking a comfortable posture that you can be reasonably still. And breathing in and out of your heart, just imagine you can breathe through that heart center. You might even visualize breathing in light and radiating it out. Getting in touch with a basic warmth. And then... Starting with some forgiveness as a way of cleaning our slate with the world. I'll say the words out loud, and if images come up, just whatever happens is fine. No trying to make anything happen. Just take what you get. If I've hurt or offended anyone in any way, I ask your forgiveness now. If anyone has hurt or offended me in any way, knowingly or unknowingly, I forgive you now 
understanding unskillful actions come out of ignorance or fear or attachment. And then sending some thoughts of kindness to yourself, connecting with that place that has sincerely made the effort to open your heart, open your mind, that deserves to be happy. May I be happy. And may I be peaceful. May I be free of fear and ill will. May I see things clearly and grow in wisdom. I'm bringing someone else to mind perhaps who opens your heart or more than one person and sending these thoughts to them. May you be happy and peaceful. May you grow in loving kindness and compassion. May you be free of fear. May you grow in wisdom, understanding. Now directing those thoughts to all the people in this room who you've shared this retreat with and that commitment with. May all of us be happy and filled with peace. May all of us grow in loving kindness and compassion. May all of us be free of fear and ill will. May we all see more clearly and grow in wisdom. May we share any wisdom and love that we gain through our own practice with all beings. From this room, radiating those thoughts out throughout this facility and this area and this state, throughout this country, throughout the planet, to all beings in all directions, beings in suffering, beings who cause suffering, beings in happiness, beings who cause happiness. As I would like to be happy, so may all beings be happy. As I would like to be peaceful, so may all beings be filled with peace.
May all beings grow in loving kindness and compassion for themselves and for others. May all beings be free of fear and judgment. May all beings see clearly and grow in wisdom. May all beings everywhere be happy. Thank you. This talk was given by James Barris at Insight Meditation Society on April 11, 1985. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.